Alright everybody, welcome back. In this episode we're going to take Esther chapter 2, where Esther is chosen to be queen. And let's just jump into the first four verses, then we'll review the gathering together of a harem for King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and a search is made for a placement for Queen Vashti. Alright, jumping in. After these things, when the wrath of King Xerxes subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what she and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let the beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. So after these things. This is broader than just the events of the previous chapter. Uh, Esther chapter 2 verse 16 will indicate that there was a four-year span between chapters 1 and 2. During that time, King Xerxes made his great unsuccessful invasion of Greece, and he came home a defeated man. We're going to talk about that. And he wanted to cheer his heart through sensual diversions. And uh, said, let the beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. The plan was to assemble a harem from the most beautiful women of the land, to bring them into a harem for the king, and to choose the most favored woman to be his queen from that group. This was sort of a Miss Persian Empire contest, and the winner would be queen instead of Vashti. So this thing pleased the king, and he did so. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus says the... uh, Xerxes had a total of 400 women selected here. All right. So the Greco-Persian battles. At 490 B.C., you had the Battle of Marathon. At 480 B.C., you had the Battle of Thermopylae. You'll remember that with the 300 and the Spartans. Uh, You'll have 480 B.C., the Battle of Salamis. And 479 B.C., the Battle of Placia. So the Battle of Marathon. All right, so the battle took place between the Greeks and the Persians at Marathon, a plain on Athenian territory which was 25 miles northeast of Athens. In 490 BC, Herodotus presents the campaign as having been initiated against the Greek cities of Athens and Aricia by Darius I in revenge for their support of a revolt within the Persian Empire of the Ionian or Greek cities of Asia Minor in 499 to 494 BC. At the same time, he portrays the Persian motive as the conquest of the whole of Greece. The Persians, some 90,000, far outnumbered the Greeks, maybe some 10,000. According to Herodotus, the dead numbered the uh, 192 Athenians and 6,400 or 6,400 Persians. So the Battle of Thermopylae. And Thermopylae in the Greek is hot gates. Uh, Everybody... Everyone's pretty familiar with this one from the movies. Uh, And this was the name of the pass taken from the hot sulfur springs in the vicinity. It was the scene of the first major battle fought during the invasion of Greece that Xerxes led between 480 and 479 B.C. Uh, The Xerxes campaign motivated partly by the desire to avenge the Greeks' defeat of the Persians at the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. and partly by ambition for imperial expansion. So even before the Battle of Thermopylae, Xerxes had uh, already won over large parts of Greece through both a diplomatic initiative and the threat of force. The remaining Greeks, under the leadership of Sparta, abandoned the um, Thessalian frontier 
and made a stand instead of at the pass of Thermopylae. Thermopylae was the main route by which an invading army could penetrate from the north into southern Greece. In ancient times, it was a narrow track about 50 feet wide passing under a cliff. And again, in 191 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus III, or the Great, was defeated while attempting to check the Romans at this point. So while regarded as an exaggeration, Herodotus will indicate that the Persians numbered 2.6 million against some 7,000 Greeks. Thermopylae won eternal fame as the scene of the heroic death of Leonidas I and his 1,400 men, including the fabled 300 of whom were Spartans. The Greeks were betrayed by uh, Ephelades, a Thessalian, into the hands of the Persians. And I probably mispronounced that name but that's okay. Who, uh, by following a path over the mountain, he attacked the Greeks from the rear, right? He showed them this side path. And the Persians went on to take Athens, but later in 480 BC, the Greek navy defeated them at the Battle of Salamis, halting Xerxes' advance on Greece and putting an end to his imperial ambitions. So the Battle of Salamis, or Salamis, however. An important Greek naval victory in 480 BC which occurred in a strait near the island of uh, Salamis, not far from Athens. The Persians under Xerxes had been advancing with great success through Greece and in 480 BC had captured Athens. Both Greek and Persian supplies were running low and there was a disagreement among the Greeks as to what their next move would be. Some advocated withdrawal to Corinth, however. The Athenian general um, Themistocles argued that it would be more effective to pursue an aggressive naval policy and hold their position. When he threatened to leave with the Athenian navy, the rest of the Greek force agreed to his plan. By some accounts, Thermistocles then sent a secret message to Xerxes, saying that his Athenian navy was prepared to turn against the rest of the Greeks, and that the Persians had only to attack to secure a victory. Xerxes, perhaps fooled by this ploy, attacked with his fleet of about 400 ships. When the Persian navy advanced, the fleet of about 380 Greek ships backed further into the bay, which was a tactical maneuver designed to draw in the Persians. Crowded in the narrow strait of Salamis, the Persian ships were rammed, sunk, or boarded by the Greeks for hand-to-hand combat. So the battle was a uh, decisive victory for the outnumbered Greeks, who lost only about 400 ships, compared to more than 200 lost by the Persians. And that halted the advance of Xerxes and ended the Persian threat to Greek civilization. So the Battle of Placia, the final battle of the Persian Wars, in which the remaining Persian forces in Greece were defeated and driven out. Right? So we will note that all authority comes from God. Right, Pharaoh had to learn that lesson in Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 verses 3 through 5. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn it in Babylon in Daniel chapter 3 and 4. Belshazzar learned it at his blasphemous banquet in Daniel chapter 5. Sennacherib learned it at the gates of Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. Herod Agrippa I learned it as he died being eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12 verses 20 through 23. And the United States may be learning that lesson right now, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. So after these battles, the king came home a bitter man. And it was only natural that he should seek some kind of comfort in his own home. But then he uh, remembered that Vashti had been dethroned and he was without a queen. So, a call for a new queen. Xerxes had invaded Greece with an army, it is said, of more than two million. 
Uh, about 2 million soldiers, only 5,000 of whom returned with him. So a significant loss. And it was after his return from this disastrous invasion that Esther was chosen as his queen. It is 478 BC. He will live another 13 years, and she will live into the reign of her stepson Artaxerxes and Nehemiah's request to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6. And if you study Daniel's 70 weeks, you'll see the profound significance of this exact event. All right, so in verse 2, uh, they would be aghast at Vashti's reinstatement as she might extract ultimate vengeance for their part in her disgrace, right? And in verses 3 and 4, uh, now they certainly did not want Xerxes to reinstate her for fear that she would turn against them. The suggestion appealed to the king, and he followed it, right, to bring forth this uh, harem of women. All right, so moving forward, we had to do a little brief history lesson there. Uh, verses 5 through 7 in Esther chapter 2, we'll talk about Esther and her family. So in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimshi, the son of Kish, who was a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconia, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. All right. So the certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, came to Persia in one of the waves of relocation that the Babylonians imposed on Judah when it conquered that land. Uh, Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. Esther, whose Jewish name is Hadassah, means myrtle. The Persian name Esther means star, and was raised by her cousin Mordecai since the death of her father and mother. In prophetic symbolism, the myrtle would replace the briars and thorns of the desert, so depicting the Lord's forgiveness and acceptance of his people. In Isaiah chapter 41 verse 19, chapter 55 verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 1 verse 8. So they were part of the large Jewish community that was forced to relocate out of Judah and didn't decide to return with Ezra. In the day of Mordecai and Esther, the land of Judah was regarded as a wild and backward place. So this woman was lovely and beautiful. The Hebrew for lovely and beautiful is literally beautiful in form and lovely to look at. Or as the NIV has it, lovely in form and features. We regard that the Bible is generally given to understatement. When it says that Esther was lovely and beautiful, we know that it isn't exaggerating. So looking back, verse 5. Shimei also... Um as also Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, Josephus refers to Esther as of the royal family in antiquities. So Shimei, uh, Shimei was the son of Gera, who was a Benjamite of Saul's house. When David was fleeing from Absalom and reached the edge of the valley between the road and Shimei's house, Shimei ran along the ridge over against the road, cursing and throwing stones and dust at him and his mighty men still as he went, and saying, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial, the Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, and the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of 
Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. That's in Second Samuel chapter 16, verses 5-13. through 13. So referring to his hanging up Saul's sons for the Gibeonites in Second Samuel chapter 21, which in time preceded this. Also to his general engagement in wars in First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8. So Abishai would have taken off his head then and there as a dead dog, presuming uh, to curse the king. But David felt it was Jehovah's doing. Let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him, and it may be that the Lord will look on shine affliction and requite me good for his cursing. So Shimei wisely was the first of the house of Joseph to meet David on his victorious return over Jordan. A thousand Benjamites and Ziba with his fifteen sons and twenty servants were with him, and he fell down before the king, confessing his sin and begging David not to impute iniquity to him or remember and take to heart his perversity. So again, Abishai would have slain Shimei, but David felt his day of restoration to the kingdom was no day for avenging wrongs, and said, Thou shalt not die. So Gene... <laughs> Genealogical ironies here, David's sparing of Shimei resulted in a Mordecai, right, of where we're at right now. Saul's sparing of Agag resulted in a Haman. All right, verse 6. So this deportation under Jeconiah began some 80 years earlier, and there were at least three captives of Judah. The first, when Daniel was carried away in the third year of Jehoiakim, which was in 605 B.C., in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. The second, that is here referred to, when Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, was made prisoner some eight years later, or in 597 B.C. And the third was when Zedekiah was taken and Jerusalem was burnt in 586 B.C. So Kish belonged to the second captivity. In 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 15, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 10, in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1. All right, and in verse 7, uh, when he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. Uh, so, Jesenius, one of the greatest Hebrew authorities, says that Esther is taking from the word to hide, and it means something hidden. So, Esther was a Jewish, or a Jewess, named Hadashah, or meaning the myrtle, which we talked about. But when she entered the royal harem, she received the name by which she henceforth became known. She was the daughter of Abihail, a Benjamite. Her family did not avail themselves of the permission granted by Cyrus to the exiles to return to Jerusalem. And she resided with her cousin Mordecai, who held some office in the household of the Persian king at Shushan in the palace. All right, moving forward. Verse 8, where Esther is taken into the king's harem. And so it was, when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken into the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. So it seems that Esther didn't really have a choice about this, and taken into care of Haggai the custodian. Haggai was the king's eunuch in Esther chapter 2 verse 3. He was a man that was entrusted with the oversight of the king's harem for obvious reasons. He was a eunuch. So according to Baldwin, Haggai is specifically mentioned by the Greek historian Herodotus as being an officer of King uh, Xerxes. The name Haggai occurs as an officer of Xerxes in the histories of Herodotus uh, volume 9 page 34. All right, verse 9. 
Esther in the courts of the king. So Esther's favored treatment in the palace. Now the young women pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So, immediately she got his favor. Esther obtained favor with Haggai, the man in authority over her. In this, her godliness ensured a fulfillment of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, which states, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. And so he readily gave her uh, beauty preparations and allowance. Because of this favor, Haggai gave Esther special beauty preparations beyond her allowance. He also gave her seven choice maidservants to look after her beauty needs. So Esther was beautiful to begin with, and now she looked like one of those after pictures from the Glamour Photo Studios. And she looked that way all the time. And the ancient Hebrew word for beauty preparations comes from the root to scour or to polish. All right, verses 10 and 11, where Esther conceals her Jewish identity. So Esther had not revealed her her people or family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it and every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her so she didn't reveal her people or family normally there is never a good reason for hiding the fact that we are Christians far too many Christians act as if they are secret agents and they always conceal who they are in the Lord and we must take the warning Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33 seriously. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We cannot live a life of denial and expect God to recognize us. So Mordecai told her not to reveal it. So, However, we do recognize that there are situations where God may have us be uh, written about our Christian identity, right? Not for the purposes of permanently concealing it, but waiting for the opportune moment to reveal it. Apparently, this is what Mordecai sensed was right to do in this circumstance, and Esther agreed. For example, in some situations, one might initially act as if they know nothing when approached by a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon and do it not to deny Jesus but to seize a strategic opportunity right to pray you know tell him what the gospel is so every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare so Mordecai's great interest in Esther's state shows his love and concern for her in such a potentially dangerous place for him all right verses 12 through 14 the method of preparing and presenting the women before the king is established so each young woman's turn came to go in to King Xerxes after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women and thus were the days of their preparation apportioned six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women thus prepared each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace in the evening she went and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgar Gaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So, 
She had to complete 12 months preparation. Persia was one of many countries that was famous for its aromatic perfumes and ancient customs for the preparations of brides, including ritualistic baths, plucking of the eyebrows, the painting of hands and feet with henna, facial makeup, and the applications of beautifying paste all over the body meant to lighten the color of the skin and remove spots and blemishes. One reason for a lengthy time of preparation was to tell if the women had been pregnant upon coming into the harem, so that the king would not be charged with fathering a child that was not his. They took that stuff very seriously. So Matthew Poole will say that the oils and perfumes were necessary because the bodies of the men and women in those hot countries did of themselves yield very ill scents, if not corrected and qualified by art. And I would imagine that is definitely the case, having been in a desert myself. So, thus prepared, each woman went to the king. It sounds wonderful, a year of constant spa treatments, yet the destiny of these women would also be considered here. One evening with the king, if he chose them from the 400 others to be his queen, then she would be his companion, until she displeased him, of course. As for the 399 that lost, or who was going to lose, they were banished to the harem, where they stayed the wife or the concubine of the king, but rarely, if ever, saw him afterwards. And they were never free to marry another man, essentially living as a perpetual widow. So, Ganesium. The Ganesium comprised at least three houses. One, a residence for the queen, corresponding to that which Solomon built for the daughter of Pharaoh in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 8. Two, a house for the secondary wives or concubines. And three, a house for the virgins. On returning from their first visit to the king's chamber, a woman ordinarily became an inmate of the second house. This second house was under the care of a eunuch called Shashgaz. All right, verses 15 through 18, Esther is selected as queen. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Xerxes and to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, and the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So Esther requested nothing but what Haggai the king's eunuch uh, advised. So Esther's humble wisdom was shown in the way that she allowed the custodian of the women to assist her preparations. She got a little inside secret there. So Esther obtained women in the sight of all who saw her. This was because of both Esther's godliness and beauty. Beauty often gains people, especially women, favor with others. This is a fact that Christians must accept, wisely teaching their children what really matters, and refusing to rely too much on beauty for our judgment of people. It's very effective. So she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. Because of the great favor that she obtained with the king, Esther was selected to be queen to King Xerxes. So Esther's life so far had been remarkable. She was the child of the Jewish exiles who both died. She was raised by her cousin in a foreign and often hostile land. And she was taken by compulsion into the king's harem. She found favor with whom all that she met. And she was finally selected to be the queen of the realm. So... Talk about from rags to riches here. So this remarkable course of events wasn't an accident, of course. There are no such things as an accident. 
And uh, it wasn't just because, or I should say coincidence. Uh, coincidence isn't a kosher word. So it wasn't just because of luck or fortune or Esther's good looks or sparkling personality. God had a plan here, and Esther is the part of it. As Psalm 75 verses 6 and 7 says, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts the other. In exactly the same way, we have a place in God's plan. Wherever you are right now, God has a purpose for it. Maybe a short purpose or a long one, perhaps a large purpose or a small purpose, but God has a reason. To this point, the story of Esther also shows us that in the outworking of his plan, God can use the evil of man. God did not make uh, Xerxes drunk or make him demand that his queen present herself in an immodest way before the lords of the kingdom. Yet God allowed this wicked action of man to fulfill a purpose in his God's greater plan. We find assurance in the truth that no other person, no matter how evil they are, can defeat God's plan in our life, no matter what they've done to you or will do to you. It'll work out to God's plan regardless. So the genealogy. Abihel is the uncle of Mordecai, literally the paternal uncle or the father's brother. The genealogy uh, would be under Kish, there'd be Shimei. And from Shimei you have Jer and Abihel. Under Jer is uh, Mordecai. And out of Abihel you'd have Esther. And so she was raised by Mordecai, both coming from Shimei and Kish. So, verse 16, to Beth, the great feast was uh, four years earlier. This is the only mention of the month to Beth in Scripture. And it followed Chislu and corresponded to the end of December and the earlier part of January in verse 16. And in verse 17 and 18, uh, thus the humble Jewish maiden, the orphan dependent for her living on the cousin's charity, became the first woman in all of Persia, the wife of the greatest of living monarchs at the time, the queen of the empire, which comprised more than half of the known world. All right. Verses 19 and 20, uh, Mordecai is going to save the king's life, and Mordecai's rise in prominence, and Esther continues to conceal her Jewish identity. So, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now, Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai for when, uh, as she was brought up by him. So, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. This position will indicate that Mordecai was associated with the decision makers and men of influence in the kingdom. A lot of business happened at the gates, all through scripture, and all through history. So now Esther had not revealed her family or people. So some have thought that the book of Esther carries the idea of concealment too far. This book has been criticized because it does not mention the name of God. Uh, neither does the Song of Solomon, but they're important regardless. Some say that the name of God was left out of the book of Esther because of its use in the festivities surrounding Purim, where people commonly became drunk. And one rabbi taught that a man is obligated to drink on Purim until he's unable to distinguish between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. Uh, some have wondered if, in that atmosphere, it would be too easy to profane the name of God if it were to be read at such a festival. Others will see the name of Yahweh hidden in acrostics, based on the initial and final letters of successful words in Esther chapter 1 verse 20, chapter 5 verse 4, chapter 5 verse 13, and chapter 7 verse 7. In some manuscripts, the letters in these words are written a bit larger to give them more prominence. So perhaps also the book of Esther 
uh, Esther does not contain the name of God because it was written under Persian rule and for distribution in the Persian Empire. And most likely, the book of Esther doesn't have the name of God because it shows how God works behind the scenes. God is always active in Esther, even though it is behind the scenes. And it works that way today, too. All right, verses 21 through 23. Mordecai hears an assassination conspiracy and informs the king, saving the king's life. So in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. All right. So Mordecai's attitude wasn't, I'm a Jewish man in exile under a pagan king, so I don't care if he's killed. Instead, he fulfilled Peter's thought in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, before Peter ever wrote it, which states, Fear God, honor the king. This threat of assassination was real. Uh, Xerxes was eventually murdered by his prime minister, who placed Artaxerxes I on the throne. And both were hanged on a gallows. The word gallows is literally tree, translated. And the idea that they were hanged on a tree probably refers not to a hanging with a noose around the neck, but to an impalement on a stake, much like a crucifixion. So a pointed stake is set upright in the ground, and the culprit is taken, placed on a sharp point, and then pulled down by his legs until the stake that went in at the fundament passes up through the body and comes out through the neck a most dreadful species of punishment in which revenge and cruelty may glut the utmost of their malice the culprit lives uh, or lives the culprit lives a considerable time in excruciating agonies and i would imagine so so this was a position uh looking back at verses 19 through 21 um Mordecai sat at the gate, so this was a position of the highest possible trust and gave conspirators a terrible advantage. Xerxes later actually lost his life, right, uh, through a conspiracy formed by Artabanus, who was a captain of his guard, with uh, Aspamitris, who was a eunuch and a chamberlain. And in verse 22, Josephus says that a certain uh, Pharnabazus, a slave of one of the conspirators, betrayed them to Mordecai in antiquities to the Jews. And uh, verse 23, the crucifixion invented. So rather than being hanged on a modern type gallows, the men were probably impaled on the stake or post. In Ezra chapter 6, verse 11 for that. This was not a usual method of execution in the Persian Empire. Darius, Xerxes' father, was known to have once impaled 3,000 men. A record of this assassination attempt was written in the records, the official royal record in Esther chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and this will prove to be a plant in the plot of the pivotal significance later in the tale. So, relevant genealogies here. Uh, Amestris was the was the excuse me the mother of Artaxerxes who ruled from 464 to 425 BC. Vashti was deposed in 482 BC. Artaxerxes was born in 483 BC, and Amestris exercised great influence as the queen mother during her son's reign. Right, Vashti or es Esther, and it was her son Artaxerxes who ruled during the time of Ezra. In Ezra chapter uh, seven verse one and verse seven verses eleven and twelve and verse twenty one in chapter 8 verse 1 as well as Nehemiah in chapter 2 verse 1 chapter 5 verse 14 chapter 13 verse 6 and gave the decree that triggered Gabriel's um, 70 week vision to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 alright that ties up the chapter 2 in chapter 3 
We will talk about Haman's conspiracy, and Haman is going to determine to destroy the Jews. We're going to see the wrath of the Amalekite. All right, thank you for joining me.